Hello, friends. Welcome to episode two of the Delgado podcast as we continue our conversation with Dr. John Barton about his latest book called A History of the Bible, The Story of the World's Most Influential Book. And I don't know about you, but I walked away from the last discussion feeling encouraged and empowered to study the Bible more critically. Hearing him share his viewpoints on scripture was very comforting to me as he talks about his own perspective and also his own challenges of reading the Bible. In today's episode, Dr. Barton talks with us about discrepancies in the Gospels and ways for us to navigate the obscure and also very upsetting aspects of scripture. He also shares insights into why it's important to be a critical reader of the Bible and to question the passages that trouble us. He also discusses the different types of research tools that we can all use to help us in our own study. And at the end of the interview, Dr. Barton talks with us about how critical study of scripture will most likely inform our own devotional readings. Here's our conversation. My point is that this is why I try to introduce this idea of a kind of Venn diagram, that you've got two circles overlapping, one of which is the contents of the Bible and the other which is the contents of the Christian faith, as in the creeds, and they overlap, but they're not identical. As you said, if you're on a desert island with the Bible, you wouldn't then, when you were picked up 30 years later, say, well, I've um, come to the conclusion that virgin birth and the Trinity are central to Christianity. And similarly, if you were on the visit island with a creed, uh, you wouldn't then be able to predict all the contents of the Bible from that. Uh, because there's no total correlation between the two. There are different ways of looking at the, at the tradition. But that, that was the point I was trying to make. And I think, yeah, you wouldn't arrive at those doctrines just by reading the New Testament. Yeah, I found that super helpful. And also your the way that you talked about the discrepancies in the gospel accounts. And that's something that I also like struggled with. I think I've always kind of like looked forward to seeing like those those things in the study Bible where it shows like the parallels between the gospels, where mm-hmm. it's like the chart of like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you see like the various stories that are similar, right? Like yeah. I always like, okay, I got find like, okay, that's that shows me that there's consistency and the harmony of the gospel. So I I always found that like helpful. But then there's mm-hmm. always those things that are different. But then like, oh, wait a minute, this author's saying this, and that that's always something I've also struggled with. That's right. I mean, there are discrepancies. I mean, one of the big ones which I mentioned is the cleansing of the temple when Jesus throws out the money lenders and so on. And in John's Gospel, that's one of the first things he does. In the other Gospels, it's one of the last things he does before the passion, before the rest of crucifixion. Now, unless he did it twice, one or other of those accounts isn't right in the sense of being historically accurate. But St. Augustine was faced with that and with other discrepancies and said, None of the discrepancies in the Gospels detract from the actual picture of Jesus who get there. But they're clearly describing the same person, even though they tell some of the details slightly differently. Now, that may be a little bit of a fudge. I mean, sometimes the discrepancies must go a bit further than you can deal with that way. But nevertheless, he's right in principle that we've got a picture of Jesus from the Gospels, which um, isn't falsified if some of the detail is not dead accurate. I mean, Augustine discusses where in one gospel Jesus says, I'm not worthy, John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to bend down and 
unlatch his sandals. And another, he says, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. Now, Augustine said, well, which did he say? Well, it could easily have been either and people may have misremembered. But the point he was making is still the point that Jesus is much more important than I am. Uh, and that, that stands, even though there are discrepancies. And we shouldn't work ourselves up over the discrepancies to an unnecessary extent. Well, that seems to me that's a sensible way of looking at the, at the problems. And as you say, at least with the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, we've obviously got the same story, even though if you do it through the parallel columns, you find discrepancies between them. The problem is John, which tells a rather different story of Jesus, um, in which he, examine which he visits Jerusalem a number of times, whereas in the other Gospels you get the impression he only goes up once to Jerusalem. So there are some problems there. And the, the Jesus of John's Gospel isn't like the Jesus of the other Gospels. He's a more mystical sort of figure. But nevertheless, I think the point is a sound one, that when you look at parallel columns, you can say, well, we are dealing with stories about the same person, even though there are differences in detail. Yeah, I also like that you pointed out um, how the New Testament was largely written by Luke. Or I think uh, my understanding of it was that Luke was written by Luke, but maybe I'm totally off. And then Acts was also written by Luke. And that's a, a majority. That's a a good chunk of the New Testament, and then Paul letters. Yeah, it is a good chunk, yes. Yes, I mean, Acts presents itself as being the second book, uh, and from the style, it's the same as Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, so it looks as though Luke-Acts was originally a single work telling the history of Jesus and the early church. And then later on, people said, oh, well, Gospels are different things from the Chronicles of the early church. So they divided them up, and Luke goes in the gospel section, and Max goes in the other section. But in yeah. principle, um, it is all by Luke, and that is a, quite a long chunk, as you say, of, of the Bible. And Luke is quite a long gospel. All of the, the various insights on the New Testament, like I'm still like struggling, I'm still like processing through all these things, but it's helping to, it paints a, a really good picture of what the New Testament these various letters were trying to accomplish to show uh, the story of Jesus and then showing how the early church kind of told that story. And, uh, and also like the way that Paul especially took on these like massive doctrines um, like justification by faith and introduced these themes that we don't find anywhere else really. Um, yeah. These very, uh, doctrine of uh, original sin, depending on your viewpoint on that, like there's all these very interesting themes that kind of bring up out of Paul. That's right, yes, yeah, and uh, some of them, those two you mentioned, are not there clearly in Jesus' own teaching, really. They're, they're things that Paul produces, which depend on Jewish thought in his day, but don't seem to have introduced, influenced Jesus all that much. But there's a slight disconnect there. How like these days with social media, how we have these social media influencers, right? Their content goes out on Facebook or Instagram and gets liked and shared. And I was thinking like Paul was like the early influencer. Everything he wrote just got spread, yeah. liked and shared. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yes. I think sometimes I think I, I may make this point that people say, well, Paul wasn't writing scripture. He was writing letters. And that's true in a sense. I mean, it's important because 
we can elevate it too much and say it's all holy scripture and it's all divinely inspired. And in fact, they are letters to particular communities. Once or twice, as you know, in First Corinthians, he actually says, this is not the Lord speaking, it's me, Paul. You know, he distinguishes between his own message and the message of the Lord. Nevertheless, I mean, that all being said and being true, um, he wasn't writing, you know, a kind of casual email. <laughs> um, he was writing something that was meant to be pondered and reread and read aloud and thought about and discussed. And he was producing something serious, even though maybe it wasn't scripture in the sense that the Old Testament was scripture. But nevertheless, it was meant to be serious and important piece of writing. And uh, he he is the great influencer, as you say. I mean, he, and he's very determined that his take on the gospel is the one that all the converts all around the Mediterranean must get hold of and believe in. Not a doctrinaire in that sense, person. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting because, like, if you're to take just the the gospel accounts, mm. the things that Jesus taught, like that is uh, that's one like kind of storyline of what Christianity teaches so as far as like how to live, love God, love others, and then you have Paul who just takes on these like massive um, doctrines and, and spells them out and talks about his viewpoint on these things that Jesus didn't really reference. And so I find that yeah. very interesting. That's right, yes. I mean, again, taking my concentric circles, Jesus and Paul overlap, but not identical. Um, not concentric, I mean, overlapping circles. Jesus and Paul teach some of the same things and some rather differently nuanced things. And that, that's right, yeah. Plus, Paul does have a lot of moral teaching as well, just as Jesus does. He gets towards the end of the epistles, even Galatians, which is so hot on justification by faith, still at the end says, these are the fruits of the Spirit, and this is how you must live, and so on, in the very inspiring formulations of uh, of how the Christian should live a good life. So there's no, there's no uh, conflict between Paul and Jesus on that. And similarly, the primacy of the love command, you know, owe no one anything but to love one another, he says in Romans, which is very like Jesus saying the first commandment is to love the neighbor of God and then your neighbor yourself. So they share that view that love is somehow the central command for, for everyone. Now, I wouldn't want to overstress the difference, but they're not, they're not the same, of course. I think one of the most perplexing passage uh, books in the New Testament would be Revelation. It seems to be, there's so much symbolism. And for me, it's like, I think I probably read Revelation once because it's just a, a book that I scratch my head. I don't really know what to do with it. And I'm kind of wondering, like, as for those of us who like want to take on, like the Pauline letters are like much easier to go through because you can understand what's going on and you get to Revelation. Um, and I'm just like stuck. <laughs> I'm not even sure like what to do with it. <laughs> Of course, there were doubts in the early church about whether Revelation should be in the canon of Scripture. Um, people in the Eastern churches were dubious about Revelation and thought that it, maybe it wasn't authentic. Uh, because it's said to be by John, but we're not told who, who the John is. It's, it's pretty certainly isn't John the Evangelist. Or, or the John who wrote the letters of John. I, mean, I think we've got three different Johns. But maybe someone from the same kind of school of thought. Than those. But um, it's, it's 
a very puzzling work indeed. It has some sublime passages, you know, the new heaven and the new earth, and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. That comes from Revelation. Um, and um, I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star, Jesus says in it. Marvellous. So I stand at the door and knock. All those are sayings of Jesus that come from Revelation rather than from the Gospels, as people often think they do. On the other hand, you've got plagues of fire and smoke and horrible locusts and scorpions and things destroying people and so on. But it's a very bloody and, um, not, you know, in many places very unpleasant book. Well, I don't know whether maybe the Eastern churches were right, but it shouldn't be in the calendar. It's interestingly, in the liturgy of the Greek Orthodox Church, all of the New Testament is read pretty well. The book of Revelation is never read, never used liturgically for any worship services. Well, it is in the West, but it's not in the, in the East. But there was a kind of doubt hovering over. Yeah, I think that that that's like kind of the sometimes the hard part about reading scripture is when you come across these really puzzling passages whether it's um symbolism um metaphor uh, some of the prophecies that are mentioned in the old testament mm. um, what is it referring to and and so sometimes like these are the passages where i'll just skim like i'm just like wanting to get through it but then i'm like i'm not even really getting anything out of this without yeah, yeah that's very very hard i think that's generally right actually but we don't want to spend too much time on the more obscure prophecies, which are talking about fairly remote events and not talking about our own day at all. And I'd say the same about Josh, the book of Joshua, say, with all the bloody wars and having tent pegs stuck through their heads and this kind of thing. Um, but, you know, we don't read that as edifying, which uh, right. all scripture is supposed to be good for buildings up, but we don't get very built up by reading early. That's a Joshua. You do get the sense this is the early people of Israel moving into the promised land and how ambiguous their actions were. Some of them were good and some are bad. And in that sense, the kind of claim that all human life is there in the Old Testament is valid. But you don't get inspiration from reading about how um, Jael hammered a tent peg through somebody's head. At least I hope you don't. Yeah, yeah. It can more anger us than bless us because you yes. read these passages, these bloody passages, and um, sometimes being ascribed to God, God, you know, go and kill all these people, including the babies. And you're like, that should incite anger in us, not peace mm -hmm. and joy. No, that's right. And and uh, that kind of anger is a good anger, which we ought to feel sometimes. And, and the, the Old Testament, in places, can actually be a useful incitement to that kind of righteous anger, I, I would say. But, I mean, I wouldn't defend it if it consisted entirely of passages like that. There's all the, the good stuff as well. But when you have got that kind of thing, I think the right reaction is reading 
people sometimes say against the grain, in other words, resistant rebuild, which says this is there to show us what we shouldn't do rather than what we should do. I like that. I, I heard or read somewhere that someone referred to some of the um, some of the accounts in the Old Testament as uh, kind of like ancient trash talking, like showing how mm-hmm. our God's better than your God. Would you say that that's an accurate way of putting it? <laughs> well, there is a bit of that. Yes, I mean, um, think of David and Goliath. You know, uh, where. And Goliath swears by his Philistine gods, and David says, I'm only a poor shepherd boy, but I come to you in the name of the living God. And uh, there's a, a classic piece of mortal combat, of, you know, single combat, in which each one uh, trashes the other before they get down to fighting. And of course, the moral of the tale, as we know, is, is that it's David, the, the poor little shepherd boy who comes out on top. And uh, that, that seems to be a perfectly reasonable story to tell children. Not because it glorifies violence, but because it tells you that the underdog sometimes wins. And uh, you all need to know that and support underdogs. But, uh, that, that is a bit, there is a bit of trash talking going on there. Yeah. And it's interesting too, as, um, in the Old Testament, how certain characters like, like the David is, um, well, I think David was referenced as the, the man after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. And, and then you read the story of David and you're like not really impressed so much with some of his activities. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, mass, mass, massacres, adultery and murder come over too well, really. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's a very strange thing that, that the, the narrative voice in the Bible tells you that David is a man after God's own heart. But the actual narrative that the voice relates gives you a very much more ambiguous figure than that. Whereas Saul, whom the narrator runs down, appears in quite a good light, actually, as someone who's doing his best. Um, so, quite an interesting contrast. I mean, reading the stories of Saul and David in First Samuel and Second Samuel, in some ways, is like reading a modern novel, where you've got characters who are very mixed in their um, personal characteristics and are not at all um, black and white figures that are... are uh, more complicated. That's right. It's helpful for me to see the various dimensions. So like they're not just painting this beautiful picture because they certainly could have painted a beautiful picture of David and not mentioned some yeah. of these all his faults, right? They could have like shared like, yeah. oh David, like look at all these great things he did, and not mention the stuff that we don't we, we shouldn't know about. And if you read uh Second Chronicles, which is a book that people very rarely do read, that's a retelling of the story of David in which all the bad bits are left out. So the story about Bathsheba and Uriah and the massacres are removed, and David becomes just the man who founded the temple, got it ready for Solomon to build. So he's, he's presented in a much more favourable light in Chronicles than he's in. And there again, you've got a bit like with the Gospels, you've got two parallel accounts of the same person, addressing different things. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think all this, like, like this whole discussion as you're raising these questions and showing these various uh, ways that stories are told because different writers are wanting to tell a certain story, like we're wanting to share a certain history. Um, we have our own motives for doing so. But all of this can sometimes make us feel like, well, how can I trust anything in the Bible? And I know you're like cautioning against like, well, those don't throw everything out. That, that those types of stories, like I talked to my wife about it. Sometimes there's like obvious narrative and and historical accounts that you can say like, oh, that, that probably happened. Maybe not exactly the way that it's told, but 
Um, I, I get a sense that, that probably did happen in that time. And then there's obviously some fantastic elements that are, that are added in that, that seem more like they're trying to get a, a point across. And sometimes kind of like navigating that is what makes the Bible so fascinating and beautiful, like as a piece of literature. But then as a, as a, someone who wants to get spiritual value out of it and wants to trust it as like, as being inspired, this is where it just becomes like sometimes very, very frustrating. So there's like this, this tension of like, oh, this is like beautiful. And then like, oh, but this part of it is like, uh, a very fascinating way of viewing of how something happened. And, and so I guess that's the really hard thing, I think, as we navigate the Bible. You put it very well that actually it, it is the difficulty that if we're trying to read it as divinely inspired writing, then all the stuff about the stance of the narrator and that kind of thing, which we talk about in a kind of literary way, becomes a bit disturbing because um, does that not imply that the human narrator pulled the shots, decided how the story should be told, and where does that leave God? And I haven't got an answer to that really. I, mean, I think that is the problem in this, as people would say, liberal way of reading the Bible, um, that you end up not being sure where the divine revelation comes in. And, and I don't I don't know the answer to that. I do know that having started to read the Bible in this way, I can't read it any other way. Mm. And I, can't, I can't block all this off and start saying, well, it must all be true because God says so. Because, because he doesn't actually. I mean, there, there, there are very few places in the Bible where we're told God said this. Not some of the prophets, have, you know, thus says the Lord. But the history books, like Samuel, are not told under any rubric that says God caused this to be written down at all. It's later theories that make, make it into divine revelation. But yeah. what, what then is remarkable, if you, if you come at it from a more literary point of view, is what good literature it is. I mean, the stories of Saul and David particularly are amazingly well-told stories in a world from which we have very little uh, narrative of that quality. I mean, you, you've got to go to Greece and Homer to get anything comparable in terms of narrative skill. Well, you've got the strange thing that in the Bible, the narrative is in prose, whereas the norm in the ancient world was to write these things in verse. But the, the narratives in the Old Testament are written in prose. Then that says they are more like modern novels or stories. Um, and it's, it's very, very puzzling how they achieved that so early on in their tradition and actually constructed such amazingly well-told stories. And I begin to say, isn't that a kind of inspiration? I mean, I think from the other, from the other end, as it were, um, how did they get so good at writing that kind of material? But then you can say, well, all poets have a kind of inspiration, if you like, um, but we don't say what, what you know. William Wordsworth was actually inspired by God necessarily. Um, but uh, there is a kind of certain difficulty in seeing it just as a purely human product. And it's so good. Yeah. And in the Bible, we get a mixture. We get we get some poetry. We get some uh, fascinating stories and tales that it's those kind of stories that in the oral tradition would get passed on because they're so fascinating. And I think that was kind of the point, right? You're trying to tell a story. Well, how can I make this one? go longer well i gotta make it interesting i gotta maybe add some yeah. some detail to make sure that this this is an important story if i just add a little more elements to it i'll make it more interesting for the people to pass I it off agree. that's right yeah and of course in what gets added are things like what two people said to each other when there was nobody else there and you can say well i mean the inspirationist answer is well 
the author knew that because God told him. But from a more secular right. point of view, you say to say to yourself, well, he can't have known that you know, David said that to Bathsheba or whatever it may be. Um, it, there was nobody taking it down. Right? It must be a piece of novelistic invention in a sense. Uh-huh. And yet somehow he's captured the kind of thing David would have said. Uh-huh. You know, in a biography when you have things that the person didn't actually say verbatim, and yet it's completely consistent with the character or drawing. They would have said that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think you mentioned something like that about how, like, whenever we even read, like, biography, like, biography or history, like, we're trying to take the main bits of what actually happened, but we not know the details of how that thing happened. Yeah, that's right. I mean, with David, you know, there, there's been a lot of interest in a little fragment that was discovered a while ago talking about the House of David. And people said, ah, obviously there was then a real David. But it doesn't follow from that that he did all the things the books of Samuel say he did. Just that there was such a person. And I don't think anybody much as well people have in recent times to speak of there was, really was a David. But most biblical scholars have always assumed there was a day that he was king of Israel and he did some of the things that the Bible says he did. Um, and in a sense, this little fragmentary text, if it's authentic, confirms that there was a house of David in Jerusalem. Well, and in that case, fine. But it doesn't substantiate the whole story. Um, you no, you're not. I mean, if in hundreds of years' time, Someone discovered a little uh, inscription which mentioned Winston William Winston Churchill. It would confirm there was a Winston Churchill. It wouldn't tell us that all the things that the biographers have told us are true necessarily. And you can't uh, extrapolate from one to the other. But I think um, you know, the story of David is a well-told story about a real person. That's about as far as one can get. Dr. Burton, I want to just thank you for everything you've written in this book, the history of the Bible. And I wanted to, um, I just found it very, very eye-opening and very, very helpful as you were like researching and kind of compiling this book, mm-hmm. or even as you're like researching other books, uh, writing other books, like as you're choosing the sources, like the academic papers, the books to, you kind of trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Like what's important when looking at other books, when, as we, you know, when we're studying the Bible, we want to be as accurate as possible. And as we are like selecting which books to read to help guide us in our journey, what are some like criteria you look for when choosing mm-hmm. to help you understand a certain time period, a culture, or even a Bible passage? Right. Well, I mean, I do look for books that are critical in the sense that they don't just accept anything on somebody else's say so. They don't appeal to authorities by saying, this must be right because Professor X says it is. That's a, a sign of a weak argument normally, I think. Um, obviously, I look for books that I can see are well informed and that depend on other literature that I have learned to trust over the years. And uh, to some extent, I'd look for the affiliation of the person who's written the book if I don't know them. You know do they, if they're a teacher, do they teach at a reputable school? where they'd have been properly sort of reviewed and assessed and so on. And I'd look for articles that have been peer-reviewed, same as you would in the sciences, but the article is not just somebody self-publishing, but someone who's convinced 
a critical editor of the thing that's going there, journal. So it's a whole range of things you learn over time to evaluate whether other books are likely to be reliable or not. And then you learn to notice what kind of slant they have and whether they're very conservative or very liberal and try to allow for that. So you're, you're not being um, led by the nose, is it? Well, but you're actually making your own decisions. That's the kind of thing I think I, I do. Yeah. yeah, that's super helpful. And um, for for me and like average readers, as we're reading through the Bible and and trying to make sense of things, do you have? Uh, I actually just discovered and just ordered your um, your Oxford commentary in the Bible, and you brought together all these different scholars to kind of provide their insights on different books. And would you recommend like a good commentary like that that kind of brings diversity of thought and academics together? Yeah. I mean, this is um, selling my own words again, but the Oxford Survival Commentary, which came out in about 2001, I think, if I remember right, I and a colleague edited, and as you say, it's got commentaries on all the books of the Bible, including the Apocrypha, by the way, by, um, you know, what we think are reputable and serious scholars. And actually, there's going to be a new edition of it, which will appear in a couple of years' time. Oh! Which is not edited by me any longer, but by one of my former students. Uh, which is going to um, update what was in that. But, I mean, that's uh, generally reliable. Obviously, all the people in it have their own take on the books they're commenting on. And some of them I might agree with personally and some I might not. But it's none of it is strange or eccentric or um, unreasonable. They're all sensible commentaries. And I, I, I would recommend it. There's also an Erdman's um, one volume. Came out of again in the early 2000s, which is which is well worth using. Um, That's one volume commentaries. Obviously, there are commentaries on individual books, but then they're into things that take a long time to work through and read. But the Oxford or the Erdmans are both reliable sources of information about the books. I guess my last question, Dr. Barton, is that um, I think that as we read the Bible. Um, having uh, books that you've written, super, super helpful, having your commentaries and also just all the other uh, resources you've just mentioned to be very, very helpful in, in helping to guide us. There's like that critical study that happens that I think is really important. But then there's also like kind of a devotional aspect too, where like, what are we like as we come to it and, and our learning, like sometimes there might be a Bible passage that speaks to us in one way. And then it also spoke to us in a different way 10 years ago. And I'm kind of worried, curious, like how you, as you read the Bible, like, like there's an academic approach, critical yeah. study, which is also informing your personal opinions. But then there's also like the devotional approach, like yeah. walking away inspired. And like, like most Christians, I do both. I mean, I'm, I'm an Anglican clergyman, as you probably know from the um, blurbs and so on. And that means every day I have to say morning and evening prayer in our tradition, which includes long passages of the Bible, which are set down for you to read in a lectionary. And so in the course of a year, I get through most of the Bible, in fact, not, not starting with Genesis 1 and just reading straight through, but more or less reading large parts of it according to a scheme. And then I do try to ask myself, you know, is God teaching me something through this passage? Um, and that, with all the caveats I've been mentioning about, not thinking that the text is actually divinely inspired directly, 
you know, they're thinking that it's text that the church says God can use in communicating with us, sometimes through anger, sometimes through joy. Um, and uh, I, I do try to do that. Um, though, if you are an academic, you have to be aware you're going to a slightly different mode when you approach the Bible devotionally. But nevertheless, I very seldom feel a direct clash between the two, from one to the other. So the answers, I do do that too. Yeah. Dr. Barton, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thank you so much for writing the history of the Bible. And um, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Delgado Podcast with Dr. John Barton. It was a complete honor to chat with Dr. Barton about his perspective on scripture. It was a blast learning from him. And I wrote down a few takeaways that I want to remember going forward. And that's number one, studying the Bible requires the luxury of time and also access to appropriate study tools, which many of us might not have. So it's important to optimize our time by first reading and studying the books of the Bible that are most easily understood, like the gospel accounts and Paul's letters. And Dr. Barton also suggests for those that are new to the Bible to read the New Testament chronologically, if at all possible. So that means studying Thessalonians, then Galatians, and then the book of Mark, which most scholars would say was the first gospel account. Number two, the Bible is a complicated book that's important to many religious traditions. And it's filled with beautiful psalms and prayers, but there's also violent and upsetting stories. And also stories that are told from different perspectives, which might make us question what really happened. And you know what? Questioning the Bible is an important aspect of being a critical reader. It means that we ask questions about the purpose, who wrote it, when was it written, why was it written? And by questioning the Bible in that way, it's a healthy way for us to deal with those troubling texts that don't make sense to us. Number three, the Bible has obscure, complicated, and upsetting texts. And we're not alone with our questions. And thankfully, we can rely on academics, we can rely on theologians, pastors, and teachers to help us navigate some of those difficult bits. But we're probably not gonna get answers to all of our questions, and that's okay. Part of studying the Bible means asking questions and being okay with not always having the answers. Number four, Dr. Barton warns us about taking the Bible as 100% accurate because the moment you find a mistake or a discrepancy or something you don't agree with, you might be tempted to throw it all away. Well, the academic approach is to realize that there are discrepancies. There are questionable and exaggerated stories, there's cultural issues, but there are also beautiful and inspiring passages that can encourage and comfort us in difficult times. And number five, let's continue to read the Bible in a critical way to gain insight into the culture and thinking of people who shared their understanding and experiences of God. There's a lot for us to learn, and I'm excited to study more. Now, next week, we're chatting with Dr. Jeremy Wade Barrier about his provocative new book, providing fascinating insights into the book of Galatians. Dr. Barrier has worked for the last 12 years analyzing ancient texts and provides us with another way to understand the background and culture of the Jewish communities in Galatia. I'm super excited to share that conversation with you. So that's next time. Take care.